to pray when he would pray and make people cry with his prayers, Master Divine. And we're talking about when he would pray, that he would pray in Spanish and with such passion that um, I remember English-speaking folk that didn't have a clue what he was saying would just burst into tears. It's amazing. God is good. He's, uh, he's amazing. Amen? Amen? Praise God that we're here and able to be, uh, to be here. And it's exciting to be uh, here on another Sunday with, with brothers and sisters in Christ, with believers uh, from all over the place. And, and that's awesome. Um, we are going to uh, uh, continue in our study here in our uh, series in Isaiah, our brother eyes. And uh, thank God that it, uh, I was uh, saying earlier, you know, thank God that we are able to record these and people can uh, follow up and follow uh, there from home. Um, for those of you who are ho- uh, home, Drapers, hello. We miss you. <laughs> the dogs are going to be fine. Get to church. Uh, <laughs> but we, uh, um, it's just great to be here. It's great to be, uh, a, you know, part of a, of a body that is, um, you know, God is just moving and doing things and, and continually, and it's just amazing to see. And so um, in Isaiah here, we're in uh, 32, and it's an amazing uh, kind of a switch here. Um, We've talked about the woes, and we're getting to that place, that transition that Isaiah is beginning to make. Remember that after 39, we're not dealing so much with the woes. We are a little bit, a little bit about the condemnation and about the judgment. But after that, it's more um, focus on the Messiah and the coming kingdom. And so we're going to be focusing on that a little bit today um, as we go through this. It's, uh, um, we'll be going through uh, verses 1 through 8. And uh, see where God leads us with that. Um, and I love the subheading of the, uh, uh, you know, in my Bible here that I have, it just simply reads, Behold, the coming King. It's awesome. It's amazing to think about. And, and that's the mindset that we should have as believers, is behold, the coming King. We should have that expectancy. We should have that that. Uh, um, uh, that experience within us that, that leads us to believe that we do have a king who will be coming. He may not come in our lifetime. He may come in 200 years. He may come in 2,000 years. We don't know. But we do know this. He's coming. He said so. His promise is that he would. And here we're getting glimpses of these little snippets that, that our brother Eyes has, has uh, seen. And he's uh, proclaiming them and prophesying them. Yes, prophecy, it's an amazing thing. It's, it's part of what the scriptures have. He's prophesying ahead of time, and he's reminding the people that, that even though they've been disobedient, um, were, uh, even though they've not listened to God, um, God is still faithful. And that's what's amazing about him. I can't tell you, you know, if, if it were, I, I'm not one, and here at uh, Calvary City on the Hill, we don't believe that when you are saved, that you can lose your salvation. Because our salvation is not best based upon us. It's not, it's not uh, dependent upon you and me. It's based upon what Jesus has done. Solely. And that's it. And that's a great comfort for me. Because you know what? If I could lose my salvation, I'd have lost it. Like a billion times by now. Yeah. 
Praise God that it's not dependent on me, that He is the one who saves, and He saves from the guttermost to the uttermost. I love that. Thank, thank Dennis for uh, reminding me of that all the time. And uh, that's just an amazing thing that He does save. And He saves, he saves um, effectually, He saves um, definitely, and He saves because that's what He came to do. And so this is a picture that Isaiah is painting. He's given them the woes. He's warned them about the things that they should not do. And he's telling them and, and prophesying what they ought to do. So instead of the oughts, they're doing the nots. And they're going to get the prize for their naughty um, business that they're doing. And they were, they were sneakily thinking. They were sneaking behind God's back. And calling upon another kingdom to come and help them. Um, but God is omniscient. He knows everything. He knew. So here, um, it, it, I want to read through these uh, uh, verses real quickly, and then we'll get in a little bit deeper. Another thing that we'll spend some time is, uh, um, there is a king, and there's some of the commentaries were, uh, um, you know, is, is this talking about the king that was at the time? And the king that was at the time, of course, was Hezekiah. And we're going to do a little bit of history, because it's important for us to understand who these guys are. They're flawed, just like us. God uses them. But in the history of, of the Israelites, in the history of uh, Israel and Judah, the northern and the southern tribes, there was kings. There were kings. Some of the kings were pretty good. Not very many of them. Some of them were pretty crummy, like the stuff we have going on right now in leadership in Washington, D.C. and around the world. Um, just crummy people who don't love God, who want nothing to do with them and want to do their own thing and think they're going to get away with it. They, they operate in their minds with impunity. They think that they're not going to be held guilty. Oh, they got a surprise coming. Amen? They've got a surprise coming. We love justice because God is a God of justice. And that is one of the uh, attributes of His that is communicable, that is given to us. And that's why we love justice, because God loves justice. He is a God of justice. So justice will be done. And Isaiah has warned them and told them, and he's told them how the, the woe. Oi! Oi to you! So here in uh, verse 1 of chapter 32 of Isaiah, we'll uh, read these really quickly, and then we'll uh, do a short time of prayer. And then also... Um, uh, then we'll, uh, we'll just dig in and go where God leads. So let's read this. Verse 1, chapter 32, Isaiah. Behold, a king will reign righteously, and princes will rule justly. And each will be like a refuge from the wind, a shelter from the storm. Sounds like the song we just sang. Good timing. Good job, Jeremy. A shelter from the storm, like streams of water in a dry country, like the shade of a huge rock in a parched land. Then the eyes of those who see will not be blinded. The ears of those who hear will listen. The mind of the hasty will discern the truth. Yay! And the tongue of the stammerers will hasten to speak clearly. No longer will a fool be called noble. Or the rogue be spoken of as generous. For a fool speaks nonsense 
and his heart inclines toward wickedness, to practice ungodliness, and to speak error against Yahweh, or the Lord. To keep the hungry person unsatisfied, and to withhold drink from the thirsty. Wow, that sounds like today, doesn't it? And as for the rogue, his weapons are evil. He devises wicked schemes to destroy the afflicted with slander, even though the needy one speaks what is right. But the noble man devises noble plans, and by noble plans he stands. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you um, uh, had men a long time ago, thousands of years ago, that you began to record these for us and that they've been transmitted through time, and they're transmitted so that they're trustworthy. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the promise that is given here. Behold the coming king, a king who will come, and he did come, and he will come again. How we thank you. How that excites my spirit and my soul when I think of the blessed one who once stood on this earth, the one who made it, will once again return. But he won't be the one who will be crucified anymore. He will come as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And I thank you. I thank you for that promise that we can behold a king, a king who will rule righteously. And how we long for that, Lord. How we long for it. Father, thank you. Thank you for your goodness and grace. Open your word unto us. Open our eyes, ears, minds, and hearts to these truths. Father, we thank you. We bless you. We praise you. In Jesus' holy name. Amen. So as last week, we, uh, the, the title of last week's message was Repent and Trust in God. It's a good message. Repent and Trust in, trust in God. I mean, ultimately, that's what, it, that's what we are to do. And for those who don't believe that uh, repentance is part of what God does at salvation, um, I question whether they're saved or not. Because that's what we do. We repent. We confess our sin. We come to God and say, I don't want to do this anymore. He causes us to be regenerate, and then He changes us. And the focus is all of a sudden now, the prophet has gone from these woes. His focus now is laser-like. On this king, on this blessed one, on this royal one who was going to come. And he says, he says, behold, a king will reign righteously. That is good news. That is good news. You know, the picture that we get in Jesus when he comes back in the second advent, the first advent has come and passed. He was crucified. He lived that perfect life. He did everything. He fulfilled the law. He healed the people and he healed all kinds of diseases and sicknesses. He was the epitome of what we should be as image bearers of God. But we're failures. We're losers. We're lost. We're wicked. We're evil. But praise God that, well, we don't have the... the uh, uh, <laughs> the memory verse. But praise God that it doesn't stay that way. That He come, He came to save. And He came to save to the uttermost. 
And when he saves, he changes you. He comes inside of us and he changes us. He makes us new. He makes us free. He makes us to understand that there's liberty that he invented and that he created and that he gave for his people. And the liberties that we can have in him. And he does this by his own will. He does it in accordance with his good pleasure. He does it because he is love. And he's amazing. And here we see Isaiah giving the people uh, in the midst of his rebuke, he's giving them a hope. Behold, a king will reign righteously. This is how it is right now, he's saying, but there is a king that's coming. And he will reign righteously and the princes will rule justly. Well, who is the king right now that uh, Isaiah is dealing with primarily? Well, his name is Hezekiah. His name is uh, um, Hezekiah, and he's the king here. Interestingly enough, he is the son of Ahaz, a wicked king. So he was a king who did not please God, and he did things purposely. He built high places, and he built idols, and he did things like that, and he caused the people to come and worship these false idols. And interestingly enough, King Hezekiah, when he passes... His son will take over the reins, and his son is going to be Manasseh. He's going to be one of the worst, if not the worst, of the kings. The reason I'm saying this is because Hezekiah was in between this, these uh, um, bookends, if you will, of evil, and God used him. He loved God. He was uh, a king. He was one of the few kings of Judah who was constantly aware of God's acts in the past and his involvement in the events of every day. The Bible describes Hezekiah as a king who had a close relationship with God, one who did what was good and right and faithful before the Lord, his God. Um, in your bulletins, um, I did have those notes, Second Chronicles, you can go in and read about Hezekiah and his, um, the things that he did and the things that he was. Amazing story, an amazing man. This is one of those places where we see a supernatural act that takes place when you're reading about Hezekiah towards the end of his life. Uh, in the last 15 years, before the last 15 years, God had come to him and, and uh, through the prophet Isaiah and said, Hey, uh, you best get your stuff together because you're going to die. You're going to be taken out. And Hezekiah hears this and a prophet has spoken this, and this is, this is how faithful that Hezekiah was. He believed him. Like, all right. So Hezekiah cried out to God. Oh, God, have mercy. God of mercy, have mercy. I don't want to die yet. I'm not ready to die. If you're willing, could you please? And God sends word to Isaiah and comes to him, and he says... The Lord has heard you, and because you cried out with a faithful heart, because you cried out to mercy, He's going to give you another 15 years. That's some good news. That's how, that's how awesome that God is. God's already told Him He's going to do that. And, you know, and it makes it seem like you know, God does respond to our prayers. Because He does. He absolutely does. And yet, all the things have been decreed, and it's, it's, I don't know how to work that in. That, my, that causes my gears in my brain to just... I don't understand how that works. I just know that it does. 
So Hezekiah's story is told in uh, 2 Kings 16 uh, through 20, uh, 2 Chronicles 28 through 32. In Isaiah, we're going to get to there fairly, uh, hopefully in the next few months, Isaiah 36 through 39. Um, he's also mentioned in Proverbs, um, Isaiah 1.1, Jeremiah, um, Hosea, Micah. Hezekiah is a son of a wicked king, Ahaz, who reigned over the southern kingdom of Judah for 29 years, from 715 to 686 B.C. Hopefully Larry and uh, uh, Tana are listening because I know he likes history. So he's getting some history lesson. He began his reign at the age of 25. So imagine being the king of a kingdom at 25. Man, y'all would have been sorry if I'd have been king. <laughs> that would have been horrible. Right? Amen? Amen. If you guys were in that same Yeah. Yeah. Second Chronicles 28 and uh, through 32. Um, he began his reign at the age of 25. Um, he was more zealous for the Lord than any of his predecessors. During his reign, the prophets Isaiah and Micah ministered in Judah. After Ahaz's wicked reign, there was much work to do. Hezekiah boldly cleaned the house. That was awesome when you read it. He removed all the statues. He removed the high places. He took all the junk out of the house of the Lord. He just removed this. He, defied every, he just defiled everything that his dad had done because his dad had defiled the Lord God. He was a godly man. Um, he cleaned house boldly. Pagan altars, idols, temples were destroyed. One of the cool stories that's in there is if you remember from Exodus, the bronze serpent that Jesus speaks about. Um, that he actually took and destroyed that. He did. Because the people had taken and found it and they made an idol out of it. Idolaters. We are idol factories. Man. They took something that God had meant for them to look to by faith and rather than doing what they should have done, they made an idol out of it. And they were sacrificing to it as if it was God. Now it was a symbol of someone that was going to come. It was a hint, the bronze serpent on the hill that you look to, to get rid of the poison of the fiery serpents. It's all a picture of sin. That's what happens to us. That's what happened to us. We're sinners. We're sinners. Um, we sin because we're sinners. Not the other way around. We were bitten by sin. And it infects us. And it'll kill us. In the end, it says, uh, as Paul says, the wages of sin is death. And it's not just death in this life, it's death for eternity. And Hezekiah was a godly man who saw what they were doing and even took an instrument that God had used for blessing by faith. And he had to destroy it. The bronze serpent that Moses had made in the desert, you'll find that in Numbers 21, and also he was also destroyed because the people had made it an idol. The temple in Jerusalem, whose doors had been nailed shut by Ahaz, Hezekiah's own father. 
Imagine that. Sounds like a lot what happened in the 20, early 2020, huh? They tried to nail the shut the doors. We said, nah, not going to do that. We're going to keep coming. Um, so his father had shut, nailed shut the doors to the temple. Um, he cleaned it out and he reopened it. Praise God. The Levitical priesthood was reinstated. That's a good story. He grabs all the, the, the sons of Aaron and Levi and brings them together. Says, hey guys, this is your responsibility. They were excited. It was, it was cool to see, to be reminded of these stories, these accounts. The Levites were excited. And they got busy. They got down to business and they got stuff because they were going to get their worship on. They were going to get their praise on. They were going to bring back the people to the Lord. They were excited. It's a cool story. It's an amazing thing. So the Levitical priesthood was reinstated, 2 Chronicles 29. The Passover was reinstated as a national holiday, which was a picture of the ultimate Passover that would happen. Under Hezekiah's reforms, revival came to Judah. How we could use that today. Imagine having a, a, a president like that that would actually institute these things. How awesome would that be? Because King Hezekiah put God first in everything he did, God prospered him. As it says, in the, and if you go in and check those out, those are the Berean, I think, the Berean uh, scriptures where you can go check it out yourself. You'll see that it says he not only prospered him, he says he prospered him everywhere he went. That's cool. That's amazing. Hezekiah held fast to the Lord and did not stop following him. He kept the commands of the Lord. Uh, had given Moses, and the Lord was with him, and he was successful in whatever he undertook. In 701 B.C., Hezekiah and all of Judah faced a crisis, the Assyrians. That's where we're at here in Isaiah. Um, the Assyrians were being threatened to come, and they were going to take over. They were going to invade, and they were going to uh, um, besiege the city. The Assyrians, the dominant world power at the time, invaded Judah and marched against Jerusalem. The Assyrians had already conquered the northern kingdom of Israel and many other nations. And remember, when they'd conquer, they would take the people and they would take them back to that country. So they'd be in a foreign land. And now they threatened Judah. In their threats against the city of Jerusalem, the Assyrians openly defied God of Judah, likening him to the powerless gods or better uh, written, false gods of the nations that they had conquered. So they included God as one of these false gods. Hey, those gods of all these different people, they weren't able to stop us. And uh, Rabshakeh, that guy, he was bragging. He's like, those gods didn't stop my king. Your God is not going to do it. Don't let Hezekiah lie to you. Don't let him tell you to trust in the Lord, in Yahweh. It ain't going to work. Those gods didn't stop us. Your God is not going to stop us. He underestimated who God is. Just like the world today. I was reading an article just earlier this week, and there was a gentleman who was part of the WEF, the World Economic Forum. And he was talking about transhumanism. And it's coming, y'all. 
AI and all that stuff implanted into people's brains. They're going to be plugged into the, to the internet, to the interweb. Imagine that. That's what they want. That's what their desire is. And the guy that was, that was in this particular uh, um, uh, article, he said, we're going to become gods. He said, I'm going to become a god. And you can't stop it. You'll have no power over it. He's going to stand accountable one day. He's going to see who God is. That's what Rab Shekeh was doing. And he came to them and told them, and he bragging. He was basically saying, my God is bigger than your God. Yeah. That's what was going on in the background. So in 701 B.C., Hezekiah and all of Judah faced the crisis. Uh, the Assyrians had already conquered the northern kingdom of Israel and uh, many other nations, and now they threatened Judah. In their threats against the city of Jerusalem, the Assyrians openly defied the God of Judah likening him to the powerless gods of the nations they had conquered. God is all-powerful. He's El Shaddai. He's all-powerful. For these people to underestimate who our God is, I find it kind of funny sometimes. It's hilarious how they underestimate who God is. They don't have a clue because they've been so blinded. Faced with the Assyrian threat, Hezekiah sent word to the prophet Isaiah. The Lord, through Isaiah, reassured the king that Assyria would never enter into Jerusalem. You know what the crazy thing is? They probably would have. God was using them for the purpose of besieging and taking over. But when this took place, it's like God's ears perked up and said, Oh yeah? I don't think so. And he stepped in. Praise God. He's like, no, you're not going to blaspheme me. See, God will not be mocked. When it says that even in the New Testament, God will not be mocked. He won't. People think that they get away with it. People think that they can do it with impunity. But no, it, it's going to catch up with them somewhere down the line. Rather, the invaders would be sent home. And man, you've got to read this story. It's just amazing. It blows you away. It's an amazing story. It's exciting. To see God, it's almost like you're there, you can just picture it. This giant army on the, on the walls, on the outskirts of the city. And they're doing their thing. And then God acts at the last minute. And then all of a sudden, overnight, this giant army, God sends an angel. And He visits them at night. And 185,000 Dead. Dead. I was listening to somebody earlier this week, and they said, you know, they, they uh, um, had the privilege of getting to know some uh, special forces people from all over the world. And one of the things that the Turkish um, special forces things, one of the things that they like to do is they like to kill when an army is together, they kill every other guy. And it's to play mind tricks. Imagine waking up and your partner, who's the one that you're depending upon, is dead. And every other, you find the same way. That's psychological warfare. That's emotional warfare. They're going to real warfare. 
It's very possible, he said, it wouldn't surprise me if God did that so that every one of them that woke up in the morning, they found the person next to them on either side of them dead. 185,000 just, and that was only just probably just a small portion of that army. Okay? Wasn't the entire army because obviously somebody found them. And in one night, one angel did this. And in all that confusion and all that thing, that's why we should pray against the enemies of God that God would confuse their plans. It's great to pray against things. Right now, even today, there might be something that's being signed away. And we need to be praying about that, that our rights and our liberties aren't given over to somebody else, to the WHO. Um, so anyways, God is faithful. He always uh, keeps His promise. Um, I, I skipped a place. In, in the temple, Hezekiah prays a beautiful prayer for help. He humbled himself. Here's the king. He goes before God. He doesn't bypass Isaiah. He's just moved to go to the temple and to pray. And he prays directly to God. You know what's awesome about that? Think about it. That's a personal God. That's a God that you can go to personally. That's a God that you don't have to pray through somebody else. You don't have to pray through some saint that's gone on before. You don't have to pray through Jesus' mother, Mary, who's passed on, who can't hear your prayers anyways. There's no reason to. I, Hezekiah went directly to God. And he poured out his heart before God. And he brought the threats and the arrogance and the pride of Rabshakeh that he was saying, your God is not going to save you. You know, as I said earlier, like, our God is bigger than your God. And he brings it and he lays it out before God. So God can see. Because God is the God who sees. El Roy. He's the one who sees. And so Hezekiah does this and he prays this beautiful prayer. And part of the prayer is, is uh, he vindicated himself in saying, Now, Lord, O God, deliver us from his hand, so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know. And this is the purpose here. This is why I wanted to read some of these things. His prayer wasn't, save us. Just save us. His prayer was this. Now, Lord, our God, deliver us from his hand so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone, Lord, are God. Amen? So that they may know that there's only one God and one God alone. And there is no other. So that he would be glorified. So that he would be exalted. God, faithful all, as always, kept his promise to protect Jerusalem that night, an angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 of the Assyrians. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. You'll find that in 2 Kings 19. The remaining Assyrians quickly broke camp and withdrew in abject defeat. I wonder why. <laughs> uh, a big portion of the army is gone. Um, maybe we should rethink this, regroup for a minute. Let's head east, guys. <laughs> Let's get out. Um, so the Lord saved Hezekiah and the people of Jerusalem. He took care of them on every side. Later, Hezekiah became very sick. I've kind of mentioned this earlier. Isaiah told him to set his things in order, to prepare to die. Hezekiah prayed. Again, he went to the Lord. 
He didn't bypass the prophet. He just took the word of the prophet, took him at his word, and then he goes to God. Again, it's a beautiful, beautiful picture for us that God is a personal God. We can go to him. The God of the universe, we can go to him. You can have audience with the king of kings. You can have an audience with the one who made everything. He invites us to come. I still can't get over that. It's still so bizarre when I think about it, so I try not to think about it too much. And so Hezekiah does this. He prayed, beseeching God to be merciful and to remember all the good that he had done. Before Isaiah had even left the king's house, God told Isaiah to tell Hezekiah that his prayer had been heard. It's amazing. He works with amazing speed sometimes. I wish he did all the time. Sometimes I'm glad that he doesn't. Because I don't want what I think I want. Right? You only find out later. It's like, oh, it's a good thing God didn't answer that the way I wanted. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So he, 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 is, he prayed before God. And before he even leaves the, the, uh, the king's house, he tells Isaiah to tell Hezekiah that his prayer has been answered and heard and that his life would be extended 15 years. Isaiah applied a poultice and Hezekiah was healed. Boom. Skadoosh, be healed. However, soon after his healing, Hezekiah made a serious mistake. The Babylonians sent a gift to Hezekiah, for they had heard Hezekiah had been sick. And in foolish pride, Hezekiah showed the Babylonians all of his treasures. That was a mistake. That was a dope moment. I shouldn't have done that. Um... So he shows all the, the Babylonians all his treasures, all the silver, all the gold, and everything in his arsenal. There was nothing Hezekiah did not parade in front of them. Isaiah rebuked him. Imagine the king, a prophet coming to him, and that's the way that God's kingdom works. God's man will go and do what God has called him to do, and he doesn't fear. Even the king. For this act uh, prophesied that all the king had shown the Babylonians would be one day taken to Babylon along with Hezekiah's own descendants. And it was. It came to pass. During the years following his illness, Hezekiah fathered uh, the heir of Judah's throne, Manasseh. And I spoke about him for, for a little bit. Who would turn out to be the evilest of kings to ever reign in Judah. It's pretty horrifying, the things that Manasseh was guilty of. Tradition has it that Manasseh is the one who murdered Hezekiah's friend Isaiah. Very possible. That's how evil that he was. One of the things that's about Manasseh, Manasseh had a son who was just as evil, um, did the same types of things. One of the things that's interesting to know as you read through those scriptures is you'll find that even somebody like Manasseh, who ultimately was taken to Babylon for a short while and repented. He repented. He humbled himself. This personal God, there was no prophet to go to. He didn't go through some other means. He went straight to God towards the end of his life. And God, in his mercy, says, because you have humbled yourself before me and asked in faith and prayer, I'm going to forgive you. 
and I'm going to restore you even to your kingdom. And he does. It's amazing. We need to be praying for our leaders like that. God could do something like that. That would be awesome to see. Um, so um, Manasseh would turn out to be the evilest king, but even in the end, he, uh, he does repent. Hezekiah's life is, for the most part, a model of faithfulness and trust in the Lord. And remember, it was his advisors that were saying, hey, we should go to Egypt. We should go to them to help us. It was them who were trying to, to do this. And unfortunately, Hezekiah didn't say, no, we will trust in the Lord our God alone. That's it. But for the most part, he's a model of faithfulness and trust in the Lord. His faith was more than, a, than superficial. We know that by his prayers. He went by faith to God. He did. He believed in the God, the same God that we do. He went to the same God that we do. Just like we do. He's a king. We're not. We still have the same audience with that same God. How amazing is that? How awesome is that? That God welcomes us because we're His. Like children. Welcome. Come. It's just awesome to think about. And as bold, uh, let's say his faith was more than uh, superficial, as his bold reforms show, Hezekiah trust, uh, trust in the Lord was rewarded and answered in prayer, successful endeavors, miraculous victory over his enemies. When faced with an impossible situation, surrounded by the dreadful and determined Assyrian army, Hezekiah did exactly the right thing. He prayed, and he waited, and God did what he said he would do. Sometimes the waiting is the hardest, but we have to learn to wait on God. And God answered. So that's who Hezekiah is. He's this uh, pretty godly king, and it's just amazing. And, and, and uh, um, Isaiah now is, in verse 1, he says, Behold, a king will come, and he will rule in righteousness. He will reign righteously. That's good news. And princes... The government, the people who are in place, it's not a deep state of, of wickedness. It's a deep state of righteousness. And they're going to reflect the same righteousness that the king will portray, that he will be. It's the same spirit. That spirit of righteousness is the idea. So all of those that are in power, placed in power by this righteous king, they will rule justly. It kind of reminds me a little bit of what's spoken of in Revelation, where John the Revelator sees this vision. He sees the throne, and he sees the one who's seated on the throne, and he's blown away. And then he says that there are 24 other thrones around the throne, and they rule with the one who sits on the throne. Same spirit. Same righteousness, same picture. He's looking way ahead, way, way ahead, more than likely. And verse 2, he says that, And each will be like a refuge from the wind and a shelter from the storm, like streams of water in a dry country, like the shade of the huge rock in a parched land. That's a blessing. So not only will the king be this, but also those who rule with him are going to be these things. 
um, the other day where there was, you know, nasty wind, it was cold and everything, and all I had to do was get in my truck, and it was like a shelter from that. You roll the window up, and it's like, ah, get out of that for a minute. Poor Tim had to mow his lawn in it. <laughs> but, but it was, it, you know, that's, that's the idea. Or, or imagine walking through the desert, and there's no water, and then all of a sudden there's water. And you're able to quench your thirst. Or the beating down of the sun out there in the desert. And then all of a sudden you come across this huge rock. This huge stone. This huge boulder. And you can sit in front of it and it blocks the heat of the sun. And it gives you rest. And you can cool down. And you can find respite. It's amazing. That's the idea. In other words... It's going to be good, y'all. It's going to be good. That's what he's promising here. It's going to be good. It says in verse 3, Then the eyes of those who see will not be blinded. You know what that means? Their eyes are going to work. But it's not just the physical eyes, it's the spiritual eyes, I think, that he's talking about here. Yeah. See, because right now today, there's billions of people around the world today that are blind. Oh, they can see. They can see physically. They can see all the things they want and desire. They can grasp at those things. They can covet those things because they see them. And not only that, they watch things on TV and they have people telling them, Oh, you deserve this. You deserve that new car. You deserve that new house. You deserve all those things. Go into debt. You deserve it. Right? And they see it with their eyes. But those who are spiritually adept go, no. No, I don't need all that. But he says here, the eyes of those who see will not be blinded. And the ears of those who hear will listen. So the ears are going to work too. But remember what we read earlier in uh, Isaiah 29 that talked about that there's going to be a voice as you walk, and there's going to be a voice behind you that says, this is the way, go in it. You're going to have spiritual ears. They're going to work. Something's going to be different. Don't go that way. Don't go to that place. Don't do this. Don't do that. Glorify God instead. Do what He would have you do. And that's what's going to be different, he's saying, in this kingdom in this uh, time period. So the eyes are going to work. The ears are going to work. There won't be any more deafness. There won't be any more blind. You know in this song, Amazing Grace, I once was blind, but now I see. That's the idea. I once was deaf, but now I hear. I once was dumb, once was mute. I couldn't even speak those things. But now I can. I can tell people about hope. I can tell people about hope because I can tell people about Jesus. I can tell them, yes, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. But I can tell them that there is hope. That there is one who came. The very one who made the heavens and the earth. He came and he took on a body of flesh and became like one of us. So that he could live it out as a man. And he could pay that price that we could never pay. That's the hope that we have in Jesus. He makes us new. 
His death paid the price for our sin so that we could be made new and we could be made new creatures. For if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That is what we are promised. And then it says here, no longer will the fool be called noble. Now the fool is an interesting fellow. Um, he's of uh, no good account. And the fool says in his heart that there is no God. And we're surrounded by billions and billions of people who are like that. Who say, no, no God. The one that I was talking about earlier that said that with all their transhumanism stuff that they want to do, that they would become God. Um, I can't remember what his first name is, but Harari, the guy that is uh, um, the spokesperson, one of the spokespersons for, for Klaus Schwab in the WEF, he's pushing this. And don't make a mistake in thinking that he doesn't have influence. He's talking to world leaders. He's talking to the movers and shakers of the world. He's talking to the earth dwellers. Remember the earth dwellers from earlier in Isaiah? Those who dwell on the earth that are separate from those who are in Christ? He's influential. He's got some weight. He's got influence. And he's convincing them that this is necessary. That it's necessary to have less people on the face of the earth because it's overpopulated. Even though God has said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Right? This is, it's a spirit of Antichrist, y'all. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Um, in, uh, in Psalm 49, 13 through 15, I want to read that real quick. Psalm 49. I still love to hear those pages turning. So in Psalm 49, verses 13 through 15, it says this. This is the way of those who are foolish, and, those, and of those after them who approve their words. As sheep they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd. And the upright shall rule over them in the morning. And their form shall be for Sheol to consume, so that they have no habitation. But God will redeem my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. You see, the fool says that there is no God. The wise one says, I need God. I want God. I want to know God. I want to see God. I want to experience God. I want God. I need Him. Every hour I need Him. The wise one says, that's what I need. I need more of God and less of me. More of God and less of me. That's what the wise one says, but the fool says the other. These who are going to be in this time, they're going to be a refuge from the wind, a shelter from the storm. Like streams of water in a dry country. 
like the shade of a huge rock. Then in verse 3, And the eyes of those who will see will not be blinded, and the ears of those who will hear will listen. Who hear will listen. Then verse 4 through 6, The mind of the hasty will discern truth. So the hasty one is like Peter. He's a great example of this guy. Before he was saved, Peter was very hasty. He would just do things. He would say things before he would even think about them. He would just do stuff. He's like us. <laughs> Peter's a, I can't wait to get to meet him. He's going to be awesome. He was like that. I mean, this is a picture of Peter. He was hasty, and he, but he will discern truth. And what happened later, after he recognized, after the resurrection, after the encounter with Christ, and after the filling of the Holy Spirit, what happened? He was able to preach like nobody's business. And he preached with power. And he preached with knowledge. And he preached appropriately. And the Spirit was upon him so that when he did preach, the people were convicted and they repented of their sin. He said so. They said, what must we do? He says, repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be baptized and you will be saved. That's what he said. It changes this time frame. That's what it does. It, it makes the mind of the hasty to be discerning of the truth. The tongue of the stammerers, those who can't get it out, who can't speak those who say that, oh, I can't speak publicly, or, oh, I can't go knock on doors, or, oh, I can't go do this and share the gospel because I don't know what to say. Start flapping your lips. God will fill it. Amen? Amen. He does. He does. And even if you think, uh, I never, ever, ever shared the gospel with somebody where I walked away going, well, I'm the man. <laughs> yeah, I did that real good. I've never walked away like that. I've always walked away, man, I should have said this, and oh man, I should have done that. And, and God is just back there laughing at me saying, I've, already, I've done what I'm going to do. Right? That's what he does. He, he does it in such an amazing way. And that's what he's saying. The one who can't speak is all of a sudden going to be able to speak and speak clearly, eloquently, even if he doesn't think so, even if she doesn't think so. Because that's our God. That's His graciousness. That's His power. That's His glory. That's His wonder. That's the majesty of our God. He'll use us cracked pots and shine that light through it. Amen? Amen. He says, no longer will the fool be called noble. Hallelujah. The fool will call a fool and we'll know that he's a fool. But here's the thing. The great thing about this time, this time frame that Isaiah is showing us, there ain't going to be no fool. There's not going to be anybody saying there is no God anymore. Hallelujah. That's why he won't be called noble anymore. He ain't going to be existing. Or the rogue uh, spoken of as generous. The rogue is somebody who is evil, who is wicked, who, who, uh, um, who is uh, someone who looks, is an opportunist to take away from even the most impoverished person and to try to take from them even what little they have. That's what the rogue is. And he will not be spoken of as generous. For a fool speaks nonsense. Whenever somebody says that there is no God, that is absolute nonsense. Absolute nonsense. 
When people, I've, I've had conversations with anti-theists before, and when they say that, well, I don't believe any of that. And I say, that's irrelevant. Because you're going to believe. You do believe, you're just resisting. You just don't want to admit it. You want to pretend like it ain't real. You want to pretend like there ain't a God that you're going to be held accountable by. That's what you want to do. You want to suppress the truth in your own righteousness. Yeah. Yeah, I want to. You, you think that you're autonomous, but you're not. You can't take a breath without Him. If God decided to take away the oxygen from us, how long would we live? Not very long. Yeah. Two, maybe. And we have that scene like the, the, uh, the one with uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger in that movie where he's on Mars and the windows break. <laughs> yeah. That crazy scene. Be like that. Within two minutes, we'd be like that with our eyes bugging out and all that fun stuff. Right? We can't even take a breath without God giving it to us. For a fool speaks nonsense and his heart inclines towards wickedness. And to practice ungodliness and to speak error against the Lord. To keep the hungry person unsatisfied and to withhold drink from the thirsty. I think there's a proverb that says that, that the, the uh, kindness of the, of the wicked one is cruel. It's cruel. That's what we're seeing here. That's what we're seeing described. They're cruel. It's like what's going on today in the, the people that need uh, food for their babies. that can't produce their own for the, for the babies. And even worse yet, this craziness is going on with, with these people that are on the, uh, in Washington and all the different state capitals. And, and they're, they're actually out there decrying the fact that it's somehow evil and wicked to stop the murdering of babies in the womb. God can even forgive that. If he can forgive Manasseh, he can forgive that. And he does forgive that. And he will forgive that. He does. That's the awesomeness of God's graciousness and His kindness towards us. That's the power of the cross to forgive, to redeem, and to use that for His glory. He does forgive, and He will forgive. But these fools and these uh, rogues, they practice ungodliness and speak error against the Lord to keep the hungry person unsatisfied, to withhold drink. Um. In the uh, pulpit commentary, it says this, Of those who were rash and hasty, who would not give themselves time to understand the warnings addressed to them, or to think of the real character of their actions, these shall, in the Messiah's kingdom, have the gift of discernment to perceive things in their nature, in their true nature, excuse me. The tongue of those who hitherto have spoken hesitantly, and inconsistently on moral and religious subjects shall be ready, prompt, and eager to speak upon them with clearness and elegance. The grace given to the uneducated fishermen of Galilee enabled them to preach and teach the gospel truth, not only with clarity, but with refinement and with power. That's the kingdom. God's Spirit will be working in each person for that purpose. And then in verse 7, as, as for a rogue, his weapons are evil. 
He devises wicked schemes to destroy the afflicted with slander, even though the needy one speaks what is right. And they try to create ministries of truth so that you can't pass your misinformation and disinformation to help somebody maybe think that, hey, maybe I'm being told to lie here. Maybe what I'm being told is not true. Oh, no, we can't have that. So they'll slander you and call you a racist for doing so. It's funny, earlier this week, uh, I can't remember which media social site I was on, but they uh, likened people who, who believe what the Bible says and actively do so. And I put a picture of, uh, they were calling people who believe like we believe, they were calling us racist, white nationalists, and all this stuff. So I put a picture of myself baptizing my brother Jovan, and I said, oh, I guess, I guess that makes me a white nationalist, uh, white supremacist, I guess, according to what your definition is. And, you know, there was people that were kind of laughing at that because it's silly. But they want you to believe this nonsense. They devise wicked schemes to destroy the afflicted with slander. Even though the needy one speaks what is right. You know, concerning the, the rogue, the rogue is a cheat. He's a liar. He's a thief. He's uncontrollable. He will not submit to authority. And the Lord hates those who devise evil and wicked schemes. Wait a minute. The Lord hates? God hates? Indeed, He does. It's not very often that we hear that in churches today. That God hates. Wait, God hates? What do you mean God hates? I thought God is love. He is love. And because he is love, he does hate. In Proverbs 6, 16 through 19, it says this, There are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven, which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes. Haughty eyes. Haughty eyes are proud eyes. I'm great. Haughty eyes. Yeah. A lying tongue. Ooh. Those White House spokespersons. Ooh. They're speaking their language of, of their father, the devil, I believe. All lies. All lies. A lying tongue he hates. Hands that shed innocent blood. There's some so-called doctors. They have a lot of that. And according to what it says in Genesis, that blood cries out from the ground to God. He hears every single one. And they have evil, wicked schemes. And they call it a conspiracy if we talk about it. Because they're doing this and they're taking babies and baby parts while they're still alive. And then they put them to death, finally. So they can harvest things yeah yeah little people and it incenses me that's where we're at they shed innocent blood a heart that devises wicked plans he hates feet that run rapidly to evil those who burn cities to the ground 
those who run quickly to decry those who would proclaim the name of Jesus. The feet that run rapidly to evil, God hates. A false witness who utters lies, God hates. And one who spreads strife among brothers. These are seven things that God hates. Because God is good. In another psalm it tells us how, how pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in peace. In harmony. It's a good thing. But here it says, but the noble man devises, in verse 8, but the noble man devises noble plans. He makes a distinction. There you have the rogue. There you have the wicked. There you have the godless. There you have the lawless. There you have the fool. But in contrast, he says, but the noble man devises noble plans. Nobility is something that we should all strive for, to be noble. Not to be proud, but to be noble. Because he devises noble plans. He wants what is best. He wants what is good. She wants what is good. What is, what is uh, um, good. And they make noble plans. And by noble plans they stand. In other words, God is the one who upholds them. In another place in scripture it says that God is looking for one man. Whose heart and mind. Soul and spirit is totally His so that He can come alongside and hold Him up and use Him. I pray that that would be our prayer, our desire to be that man, that woman. God, let me be that. Help me to be that. Because I'm not as I am. I'm not as I ought. Help me to be what I should be. Matthew Henry's uh, concise commentary says this, Christ, our righteous king, and his true disciples are evidently here intended. The consolations and graces of his spirit are as rivers of water in this dry land, and as overhanging rock affords refreshing shade and shelter to the weary traveler in the desert, so his power, his truth, his love, Yield the believer the only real protection and refreshment in the weary land through which he journeys to heaven. Reminds me of the story of Christian. Christ bore the storm himself to keep it off from us. To him let the trembling sinner flee for refuge. For he alone can protect and refresh us in every trial. Notice he didn't say from every trial, he said in every trial. He protects us. See what pains sinners take in sin. They labor at it. Their hearts are intent upon it. And with art they work iniquity. But this is our comfort, that they can do no more mischief than God permits. And right now it seems as though God's taking his hands off of this country and off of different places in the world where mischief and evil and wickedness is beginning to unfold. Let us seek to have our hearts more freed from selfishness. The noble soul devises noble things concerning God and the desires that he will grant 
wisdom, or excuse me, he desires and desires that he will grant wisdom and prudence, the comforts of his presence, the influence of his spirit, and in due time, the employment of his glory. Let me read that again. The noble soul devises noble things concerning God and desires that he will grant wisdom and prudence, the comfort of his presence, the influence of his spirit, and in due time, the employment of his glory. Not only for himself, but being noble, he desires the benefits and the graces and the glory and the majesty, and the wonder, and the awe of God for his fellow man. That's what the noble person does. The main course, the main point, of course, is the fulfillment of the kingdom of the Messiah. It will come. He came once and established that he is the one that was being looked for. He was the deliverer that was promised. He was the redeemer that would come and redeem. He is the one who would pay for the price of sin and he would face the wrath of God for us. And he did so on the cross. When he establishes his kingship, even though he is king now, we still see the rogue, we still see the fool, we still see the liar, the thief, the rapist, the murderer, and the like, the sinner. And some of us were some of them. But praise God that he didn't leave us like that. Praise God that he changes us from within. Praise God that his spirit leads us in a new direction. And that direction is heavenward. To our God and King. To our Lord and God. To the place where we belong. You see that even the place where Jesus went upon the ascension at the right hand of the Father. If you are a believer in Christ, that's where you belong. That's where you rightfully belong. There, in His presence. Don't let the enemy cheat you. Don't let the world fool you. If you are a child of the King, you belong with the King. And He welcomes you. He bids you come. Do you know Him? That is an awesome thing. In His kingdom, with Him and His actual throne, in the presence of mankind, the former sinful state of man will have been eradicated, removed, for then His righteousness will be the rule. And that's the point. His righteousness will be the rule. And He shall reign forever and ever, it says in a song. And he shall reign forever and ever. Hallelujah, hallelujah. It's awesome. And that's the promise of God. He will reign. He will come. And he's going to come. In all his power, in all his glory, in all his wonder, in all his majesty, with all his angels, and all those who've gone before, he will come. Do you know him? Do you trust in Him? Have you met Him? Has He changed you? If not, do so. Go to Him in faith. Cry out to Him in faith. 
Ask for forgiveness in faith. Trust in him by faith. He's waiting. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and grace. Thank you for this promise. Thank you for the excitement of of it, that one day we shall see all these things play out. There will no longer be a fool. There will no longer be the rogue. There will no longer be the liar or the coward or any of these things. Thank you. Thank you for the promises with such wonder and glory and awe and splendor and perfection. And it's all in your presence. And it's all because of you. Oh, how we long to see you, Lord. How we long to see you. But in the meantime, Lord, give us the strength. Give us the courage. Give us the power. Give us the boldness. Give us the wherewithal to go forward and to continue to tell people of the great hope of the one who came and who paid for everything on the cross that they might live and know that they can be forgiven. We thank you, Lord. If you can forgive somebody like Manasseh and restore them, I know that you can forgive us, restore us, and you could restore anyone that comes to you. So great is the power of the cross. So great is the wonder of Jesus. So amazing is his grace. We bless you, we thank you, we praise you. In Jesus' holy name, amen. Yeah,